Welcome back to 24 Faithful. I am your host, Joshua Rivers, joined by Bradley Adams. Excited to have him here. He is the he's the one that keeps the gears working pre-episode. He does a great job with that. And then we have Joel that shows up and, I don't know. Adds levity to the situation. <laughs> he tells me I'm located for the week. Middletown, Delaware and all. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So going out to the East Coast, very nice. You're getting closer to, a little closer to England. Yeah. Excellent. I'll be back there soon. I'm trying Maybe. to work. My, I'm trying to work my way up. All right, but anyway, so today we are getting into the second half of season number five, specifically episodes thirteen through eighteen. And based on some of the notes that I saw that Bradley put down, we see that. There's a lot of different insane ideas that Jack comes up with, but they are also a result of a lot of the insane circumstances that he and others are put in. And so insane circumstances apparently lead to insane ideas and plans and all the, all the rest there. And so the insane circumstance that we left off with last episode was when the nerve gas attack on CTU. And that led to the death of many of the CTU agents that were there. There were some that escaped. There were a lot of them that died, including Edgar. And then also, as a result of that, some of them were not able to escape, but they were able to get into some safe rooms and that were like air airlock separate from the rest of the ventilation system so they can keep themselves safe. But then a new problem arose where they learned that the nerve gas was laced with some sort of acid that was deteriorating the seals of the safe rooms. So now they had a limited time to be able to try to solve that problem, but they couldn't leave because if they were to open a door or break a seal, then the whole room would be contaminated and they couldn't do that. And so anyway, so a very difficult situation that they found themselves in. This is a really interesting concept episode, actually. We've said before about how the show has become increasingly more real-time, not real-time, but race-against-the-clock type style, as opposed to early season one where, yes, there is a time issue, but it feels a little bit more breathing room, a little bit more, okay, we've got some time to get to things. We've got to stop, whatever, but it's not instant. It's not, we've got five minutes to do this. And the more we've got into later seasons, and particularly season five, is very good at this, is that you get posed with a threat and sort of 20 minutes to stop it or to solve a situation. And that's exactly what this is. This is an hour where the majority of it is taken up in, what, three, four rooms inside CTU with a few characters that we know and love. And they have to find their way of surviving the nerve gas, this nerve gas attack. And it's just, it's a really fascinating look, actually. And you get, part of that is the rivalry that sort of starts building out between Jack and Barry Landers, the uh, therapist who was treating Kim and is now seemingly in a relationship with her, which is a bit weird. But all of that, and then the fact that he's trying to deal with Chloe's uh, emotions after losing Edgar. And then, of course, Jack having to try and save everyone because Jack has to save the day every time. I think it's just a really good episode actually but i thought it was a pretty good episode kim's therapist was uh cringeworthy sometimes 
Not a fan. But I thought that rivalry that kind of brewed up between him and Jack was decent dialogue. Jack acted pretty much like any normal father. That's not a CTU agent who is tasked with saving the world would act in the situation. I can speak from my point of view as a father. I would probably act the same way. It brought, it was, it was realistic. Even though you could see Kim's side of things to where she was hesitant to let Jack back in because he had faked his death all this time and never told her. So you can get Kim's side of the situation, but you can also understand Jack's side of the situation and how he feels about Barry. So I thought that was realistic. Chloe being upset about Edgar, which I was upset about Edgar too when I found out that he got a silent clock and Tony didn't, but whatever. You know, knowing that Chloe had pretty much been a jerk to Edgar all day, which is what Chloe does. Seeing that regret that was on her face, I thought was good acting on her part because it would have been it would have been kind of hokey for you know her to lose one of her closest friends and then just be back up and running like nothing ever happened. So I thought overall it was a pretty good episode and it showed a lot of the consequences. And this is, I believe, what, the second time CTU had been attacked since the series began? CTU needs better security. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Yeah, and you're talking about the silent clock. At least Lynn didn't get a silent clock. That would have made the comparison to Tony even worse. I want to stop watching the the the, the series. <laughs> As I talked yeah. on last week, that's it, that's a really emotional scene, actually. The yeah, the one where well, the two of them really, where Jack has to call Lynn and Harry Swinton security guard and say that they have to sacrifice themselves because if they don't, everyone else in CTU will die. That acceptance that you see come upon Lynn and Sean Astin that. He knows he's at fault for this. He knows he's responsible for this. He knows that he's indirectly the person that's killed however many people inside CTU. And he knows that now he has the opportunity to save everyone else. And he feels obligated to do it. He's got them into this mess. He's the one who has to get them out. And I love that scene. And I love the next one, the one where you have uh, the security guard, Harry, calling his daughter for the last time, completely unbeknownst to her. And remember, this is a character that we've met in two previous scenes, the I think we had him earlier in the episode and he handed the phone to Lynn in the previous episode or something like that. He's barely, he's a nobody. And 24 does this so often that it takes people that you've never heard of before and never featured before and will never feature again and makes them interesting just for that one moment that it needs them for. And Harry's no different. And it's a really sad scene when he has to say goodbye and then when they both die. And it's it's horrific as well, I should say. It's It's really awful to watch Lynn choke and convulse and just, yeah, it's not pretty, but it's very effective. Yeah. It's effective, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. 
You can like <laughs> the theme without liking Lynn. Yeah. Not liking Lynn makes it hard for me to like the scene. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll admit <laughs> it, was a pre- it was a pretty good scene. But at the same time, it's hard for me to overlook the fact that he was acting like a douchebag for three straight episodes. He's not quite in the Mason and Chappelle school of completely redeemed. He redeemed no. himself a little bit. But Mason and Chappelle's antics never got a lot of people killed. Yeah, he gets did. an honorable mention. Yeah, so there's that. And then, of course, then there's, uh, while all this is going on, you got Tony that is going insane because he finds out that Henderson is responsible for the death of Michelle. And in season seven, we find out that also death of his son. But, But we see that. So we see him struggling with this. And then he goes over to take matters into his own hands and tries to kill Henderson himself. And it's, 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 I don't, I, I don't know if I fully buy it. Cause I would think knowing Tony, it's okay. He understands that there's bigger things at stake and you can't just take out personal vendettas when there's somebody here that has information, but I don't no, know. Maybe no, he just wasn't no. in his right mind. I don't know. That doesn't, compute because Tony was really was willing to just throw the whole country away to save Michelle a couple of seasons ago. So we've already seen that he's willing to put Michelle above any and everything else. So to see, to, to see the person that killed his wife, that's two or three feet away from him. You know, it's easy to see that, Tony might not carry the country's best interest when he's. Sure. Uh, I would think that he would have learned from the previous situation, but he probably did until they shot his wife, until they blew his wife up in a car bomb. It's kind of uh, out the window at that point. I just want to know why they would put Christopher and Tony in the same room. Yeah, nowhere else they could put him. It's a, there's a nerve gas attack. They've got 10 seconds to survive it. Yeah. There wasn't another room. They could was, oh, there was just like the three rooms. The, there's a conference room, the room where Lynn and the security guard was, and then where Tony was. Oh, and, and I guess the room where the, where the air ventilation thing was supposed to be secure or something. Or I can't, I can't remember how that played out. But anyway, but there's three or four rooms. That's it. And that was just the closest one that he could be able to get to. With and well, the time they that they had, they should have sedated Tony then before they did it. it probably would have been better. Low yeah. on the priority list, <laughs> I'd say, a little bit low. I I think. How's that working it, out for you? <laughs> he died briefly. It, it makes sense that, to me. It it makes sense to me that both things actually that Tony would seek revenge on Henderson. That makes sense to me and. It also makes sense to be within his character, what we've known from the past, what, 100 episodes that we've seen him in, that he wouldn't be able to do it and that he would come to the last minute and, as he said to Jack, that he couldn't do it. He couldn't kill Henderson. And I think that's right. And I think it's something that I'm sure we'll talk in great detail when we come to season seven that I think season seven completely wrecks. But at the moment, it works within his character. And I think that... uh, 
I, I don't know how the president of the Tony Almeida fan club over there feels, but I'd, I'm a little bit torn on whether he should have stayed dead here. I kind of think that it would have been better. Obviously, the season seven stuff and the legacy stuff. It would mute, have been mute his microphone. <laughs> hey, hey, let me finish my point. Turn, turn it off. He'd have been better off staying dead for that sake. But equally, I feel like if they were going to kill him for real, do it when you kill Michelle. His existence in the episode since Michelle's death, these three and whatever, kind of feel just... They, they feel very null and void for the, killing him now. It just... I, I do wonder what the point of it was. So I'm a, I'm a little bit torn on that one. Maybe just shock. Trying to do a little extra little shock thing in there of a, killing off a main character. Yeah, when you bring him back anyway mm-hmm. later, then... They weren't thinking of that at this time. But they were. They clearly were because they didn't put a silent clock in. I don't even want to hear about the silent clock. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tony should have gotten a silent clock. All right. We have this conversation. Okay. Exactly. So you have the president of the Tony Almeida fan club versus the uh, president of the silent clock fan club. <laughs> and I'm not feeling any better about it now than I was then. Should he have stayed dead, in your opinion? Say what? Should, should he have stayed he dead? Should he have stayed dead? Hmm. No, he should not have stayed dead. They should have brought him back, and they should have went ahead with the season seven storyline, minus the turn to the dark side where he tried to blow Jack up at the end. Okay. Everything leading up to that point, I was okay with. The, the double agent kind of thing, the, the infiltration, I was okay with that. When he tried to blow Jack up, that's when I drew the line. Because okay. that is completely goes against everything that Tony stood for. I understand he wanted to get revenge for Michelle's death, but trying to blow Jack up, the cementing his turn to the dark side, that's when I drew the line. Everything else, five minutes. Everything after that was crap. Mm-hmm. Back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> so, as we continue through the, the the crazy that is going on, we come up with a new possible connection to Bjarko, and that's Colette Stinger. And in the process of getting to Colette, they got to go through a German operative. And, and so they're, they're trying to track him down and they end up in this apartment and they get to this German operative before they get the Colette Stinger. And so now they're having to deal with trying to negotiate, trying to get Colette Stinger so that they can be able to get the information they need. And Teal Stoller was not cooperative at first but then and so he he asked for the wet list which is like the list of all the operatives american operatives around the world and whatnot and it's like the secret thing that like every country wants and if he has it'll bring him up and bring his country up and all that kind of stuff and that that's what it would be worth it for him to give up colette because apparently colette was that much that important to him and his operation and 
Jack agrees. And <laughs> it starts to work, maybe. And then doesn't and then does. I don't know how I don't know how you want to describe that, but Jack always has a contingency plan. And he can't tell everybody about it. Well he's he can't because he's on, some, he's on he's on speakerphone with Teo Stiller. Yeah. He can't reveal his plan. Exactly. And also it would kill the surprise to the audience, wouldn't it? Oh yeah. He had to know that he wasn't just gonna give away the wet list. He had to know that. Yeah. It seemed a little too easy. Like you had to know that he just wasn't gonna give it away. Now what actually happened was probably a little bit of a shock, but even Mr. Stoller should should have known that by now because They've been. Tra- he said they've been trying to get it for, I don't know how long now, and he always gets shut down. Jack Bauer comes in there, and all of a sudden, bam, got him a wet list. That's just it's working outside of CTU. He doesn't work for anyone. He doesn't work for Department of Defense or the CIA or whoever. Yeah, but even if he does, even if he is working outside of the government, it's unrealistic to expect somebody that's working outside of the government to be able to just get the wet list to him in five minutes. He did, though. Traded the proof. Exactly, <laughs> but you had to know that wasn't going to happen. He doesn't know, Jack. He should have known common sense. Possibly. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's a good example, this, of Jack doing whatever it takes to stop the terrorists without actually having to resort to torturing someone. That's a very nice change of pace and something we don't often see on 24. Because every time it is just shoot a guy in the kneecap or something. Shoot a wife yeah. in the kneecap actually something that in terms of violence there isn't any it's obviously it it would in theory be very detrimental to the u.s but actually say he has a contingency and it's fairly mundane as a tactic Mm -hmm. yeah i think it was really interesting though that he was able to make that switch because i mean he got the actual list but then delivered a false list or well, he gave whatever. him, he gave him the list and then had it self-destruct. Is that okay? That's what, it, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he gave him the memory card originally to be like, this is it real. And then you can't upload it yet until I have collect. And then when he had to collect, give him out the memory card and then it self-destructs. Yeah. I guess Jack's word is not worth as much to Mr. Stoller as it is everybody else now. I think it's the first time he ever breaks his word from memory. Uh, if my memory serves me correctly, that's probably accurate. Yeah, at least where he, on purpose, breaks it. Yeah, as so, opposed to protect you and they die. Yeah. He did yeah. give us word he was going to protect Paul and, you know, <laughs> Paul <don't> go <laughs> <laughs> So... It's too bad Paul didn't get us out of the clock. (laughs) Josh, because you're the host of this meeting, I'm not going to tell you to mute your own microphone, but (laughs) I would recommend muting your microphone. (laughs) Okay, instead, how about let's move on to Bjerko? And so... Let's um, do that. We didn't talk about him too much, so he shows up, as we talked about last week, as he is the big bad or at least as far as we know at this point. And 
So he is looking to launch an attack on the United States. His original plan was to get out of the United States with the nerve gas and still attack Moscow, but everything kept getting in his way. So now he's attacking the president. And so that happened when he tried to attack the Russian president last week and that was stopped. So now he's okay. I got a new plan. And so he decides that he's going to use a, a plant, a gas plant to be able to disperse the, the nerve gas. And somehow he knows all the specs of the pressure that everything needs to be able to distribute it properly and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> anyway, I guess he might be doing a quick Google search or something to be able to understand that. Or maybe he just learned that when, with acquiring the, the gas anyway. I thought that was just an interesting thing that you walk into a plant. Yeah, I know how this works and or this person knows. And so you, you can't mess with me. When, when did season five start airing? Six. A year. Oh, six? Yeah, 2006. Mm-hmm. Okay. So YouTube was a popular thing back then. So he probably just uh, pulled up a YouTube I think, video. I think the point of it was that he had a background in engineering or something like that. Uh, it, it might be. And so I, I, don't, I don't remember what the premise was. But anyway, so I, I just remember when I was seeing that it just kind of, at least going back to the first time I saw it, that it's like, oh, that's interesting how he just happens to know that piece of information. And so the smart guy, anyway, Josh, he is, he is smart. He is very smart. And so he's definitely one of the bad guys that can contend with Jack as far as his smarts and being quick witted and being able to adapt on the fly. And so definitely. Yeah. We get out of this, the, not the action sequence that the show ever did, because there, there are many better, but certainly the best piece of music for an action sequence comes out of this. I absolutely adore what comes with the raid on the gas plant. And the action sequence itself is, is pretty fun, I'd say. Yeah, I enjoyed the action scenes. I kind of, I like Fierco, but I just, I felt like, felt like his character wasn't flushed out enough. We see that he wants to, first he wanted to punish Moscow. He can't do that now, so now he's going to punish America. Okay, I get that, but we never, to my knowledge, unless I missed something, we never figure out why did he want to punish Moscow? Why did he want to do these things? Other than the fact that he just wanted to kill Americans, I don't know too much else about him. And I think that was one of the issues that I had with Bierko because every scene that he was in, I enjoyed. From the first scene where he just killed Erwick like it was nothing, to his scenes with to his scene with Colette. His scenes in general I enjoyed. I just felt like I wish we would have known more about his motivations and his uh you know, the reason that he's doing what he's doing, I felt like we didn't get enough explanation of that. We got more explanation, in my opinion, from why Eric wanted to do this than we did from Bierko. So I just had a quick glance, and I thought it was something like this, but basically he was a separatist, him and his group were separatists, <clears throat> and wanted their country to be freed from Russian rule, basically. He was a Russian businessman and he 
essentially didn't like what the government were doing. It's basically, it, it, it's fairly similar to Erwick. I think that the whole point of it is that them two were very much on the same wavelength in terms of ideology. Now, it made it was, very easy for made it very easy for Henderson and Nathanson and Logan and everyone to to utilize them. Now, was was any of this mentioned on the show? Because I know Wikipedia adds a lot of the background and stuff in that's never actually mentioned on the show. You just got to read up on it. Was a lot of this mentioned on the show, and I just missed it, or what? There's the scene in six till seven p.m. where Buchanan briefs Logan, and there's some background given on there. Okay. Um, some of it might be bits that appear on like the LCD screens for two seconds, and you're meant to pause it and read it or something. But yeah, it's, it, it, it's hinted at it's alongside Erwick's background of, of being very similar. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. But yeah, so that was an interesting scene and the, the insane idea of sending an explosive to blow up the gas. And get it. Uh, I, I guess it was. It had to be a certain get a certain temperature, and it would be disintegrate instead of spreading. And so, it's just a totally insane thing. And in that he had to be planted at a certain place, and and it had to be set in person. And Jack had what sixty seconds or less to get out. Thirty seconds. I can't remember what it was, but and so that was well, it, definitely. It produces intense. the iconic twenty-four shot, doesn't it, of Jack running out of the gas plant as the flames come behind him. It's on the season five box set. And it's just, if you think, if you've watched 24 and you think 24 and you think memorable shots, the, the things that stick in your mind, that's got to be up there shortly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that definitely is. And so, cause you see that with the explosion right behind him and all that. Yeah. Very much so. And then a very uh, nice shot. And then of course we have the big reveal finally coming to us here where there's I, I don't want to call I, I don't know if we can call him a mastermind but a big piece a big figurehead in in this so we have Logan that is finally revealed that he's actually been the one corresponding with Christopher Henderson and involved in all of the different activities that have gone on to some extent whether he was directly involved or was known of it or knew of the things that were going on or whatever and turned his back because whatever, because he wanted to appear separate from what was going on. But yeah, so that was a, that was an interesting reveal to me. And so you, that call that Christopher Henderson was having with him. And at first you don't know for sure who it is. You hear the voice and Christopher Henderson saying, yeah, we didn't foresee that this was going to happen. Jack Bauer has been a problem, but I'm assembling a team and we're going to get it taken care of. And then it pans over and Logan there and he says, see that you do and all that. So it, it is very interesting. And so I, I still sometimes struggle trying as I look back through the rest of the previous episodes and see how it all fits together. And there's times when I can't fit it together and then other times when it's okay, yeah, I can see where that fits in with this reveal. But anyway. So there is a logic issue with it. And we've spoken before about Joel's nodding at me. We've spoken before about Logan's lack of leadership and his wimpishness in season four and to an extent in season five and his shifting of responsibility onto other people and his just general lack of 
presidential leadership qualities and we see here now that he does have those it's an interesting twist not sure about that i think i mentioned before that there are little cues in various moments at the start of the season and when bill's talking about henderson before the nerve gas attack at ctu there are little tells that if when you're looking for them and, and potentially even trying to stretch as i may be you can see that there's hints that logan's involved and he is suspicious but there's no more than that So from that perspective, yeah, it's a little bit questionable. And I will come on to a different perspective of questionable in a minute. But the reveal itself, I think, is absolutely jaw-dropping and perfect. It's very similar to Nina's in a number of ways. The whole hour before it is spent with Jack and Audrey and Chloe and Wayne and everyone suspecting Hal Gardner's involvement. Back then, it was everyone suspects Mason's involved. Mason's the one working with the Drazens. We get, obviously, the, the, the simple connection of the fact that it's both in the 10 to 11 p.m. hour, but also the way that it's revealed that we have the terrorist we know talking on the phone to someone we don't know, and we see this familiar setting. We see, back then, we can see at CTU, we see Tony limbering around. Here we see, very clearly, the shot of the outside. We can see like, the little swimming pool thing that they have just outside Logan's door, and all of the tiles and the patterns and everything that makes it look like the presidential retreat. And as we pan round to then hearing and seeing Logan and back then Nina, it is in, in the way that it's constructed, it is so remarkably similar. It's, it's clearly intentional, but just as, and I'm sure Joe will disagree because he usually does, but as Nina's was absolutely brilliant as a reveal, as is this. And Joel sums back in his chat and notice that I said that as a reveal, Again, if you want to question the logic of the backstory and how we got to this point, then please feel free to. But as a reveal, the actual scene itself, brilliant. (laughs) The nonsensical booking of this whole thing is mind-boggling. Okay, for... How many episodes was he in in season four? Nine. Okay. And which episode was he revealed in season five? End of 16. So for basically a full season, President Logan has been portrayed as a spineless coward, an idiot, so to speak. And now... We are supposed to understand that he is this, even though he's not the guy at the top, we're supposed to get this understanding that he is the brains behind the ground operation, so to speak, of this whole thing. Like he's basically running things on the surface. We learn later that there's there's a whole cabal and thing running things behind the scenes, but on the surface, Logan is given the impression that he's running things, and we're supposed to believe that when the previous twenty four episodes that he's been in, that he was just that he was indecisive, spineless, in some extent, scared naive 
all of those things, and it just takes like a 360-degree turn in those last couple of episodes before he's revealed to be working with Henderson. So that part I was suspect about, it just like, really? I do Logan as a villain. And I thought it was a different change of pace because the previous four seasons, the president has been on the right side of things, working with Jack. So it was a nice change of pace to say, you know, what if we have the president be the ultimate bad guy this season? So I thought that part was good. The Nina reveal was mind-numbing. Okay, the, 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 scene, the scene itself, I'll give it a 6 out of 10. But Nina's reveal was even worse than Logan's because you had no inclination, no hint, no even no thought in your mind that Nina might be a mole. Logan, you could get hints that he wasn't who he said he was from episode one. From the first episode he was in. Because it's just he always had this smarmy, sneaky look about him. So from the first episode, you could get an idea that he wasn't who he said he was. Or he wasn't as honest of a person as he says he was. That's all I got. The, the, the scene itself was good. But it's just, you got to build these characters up to, because now the rest of the season, the other eight episodes, all of a sudden we're seeing Logan that he's in control and he's got everything mapped out and he's got everything planned. You know, the previous 24 episodes, we didn't have that idea. So I just thought they should have built it up a little bit more before revealing that he was working with Henderson. I think the one and only misstep that this season makes for me is that from the moment we learn of Logan's betrayal and the fact that he's working with Henderson, etc., from that moment on, his lying becomes visibly worse. The more we know that he's lying, the worse he becomes it. And it's not one of those things... I don't think where well we know so we can spot everything. It feels like the show goes out of its way to make him look like he's almost slipping up every time. We'll see in episodes like the conversations with Martha and him being defensive with Mike and with the vice president over the arrest warrant for Jack, all of these things where it feels like he is starting to lose control of over events. And he is. Let's not get ahead of ourselves on that. He is losing control of everything that's happening. But it feels like now that we know, we see where he's slipping up. Whereas before, you've got to presume that things haven't gone, they definitely haven't gone to plan since 7am. But he's managed to hide it. We don't have a real hint throughout the season beyond, like I said, the shifty looks occasionally that he's involved in this. And yet now that we know, it feels every single moment someone's going to stumble upon the fact that he's involved. That's the one thing that doesn't quite sit right with me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, def- definitely. And so I agree with what you said there, because even when you go back and watch the earlier stuff, knowing that reveal, the the lying and the deception or whatever, the way he acts is different. That's what I'm saying. I try to go back and I try to look and I'm like, okay, I'm trying to look for stuff. And so like you really have to look and try to find stuff to make it fit that narrative. And so I definitely think that's true. And so I think, yeah, for whatever reason, whether it was his acting or the writing or what, I, I don't know what exactly it was that caused him to be less effective as a liar. But I think you hit the nail head in the head, though, when you talked about the losing control part. I think when, given his character, when he's in a situation to where he doesn't feel in control, he doesn't act like he's in control. So like in the earlier parts of season five here, when it's like, oh, he's starting to act a little bit more presidential. He's like taking control and leading things. And that's because he felt like he was in control of the situation. But then you start coming across the different things that are going on. Okay, things are going topsy-turvy at the airport that weren't expected. Oh, now we're starting to lose this. Oh, you make the decision. Oh, there's this the bomb that's being or the nerve gas is being released at the mall okay he's starting to lose his traction and starting to shift around and do all those different things because he doesn't have control like he wants to when he's in control he can be able to start to do that and so you can see the same thing happen too we fast forward a little bit as he has conversations with heller and so he's a lot more shifty than all of a sudden when he starts to feel like he has control he's a lot more authoritative and and acting like that and then things start to slip away again and then you we're getting into next week stuff but and so i think that's definitely there and like we mentioned before i think it or or maybe it was just me but that he (laughs) to where he's just an opportunist so i don't think he was a mastermind of the situation i think there was a situation that came up And he looked at it as an opportunity to be able to secure his part in fame or whatever for being able to be able to sign this treaty and be able to control this this situation. And he would be able to be remembered for overtaking this whole situation. And so he's, yeah, let's, and and we'll coordinate this. We'll plan this and this. We get all the pieces lined up, but then it doesn't work. And I think that's what we're seeing happening throughout the season is that all these things are going against the plan that was in motion and new things start happening. And he's not good at being able to move around and take care of the situations. And so I I think that's a lot of what goes on, but Anyway, he's definitely not a mastermind. The fact that we come to the start of the next, I know it's an episode for next week, but the fact that we come to Henderson having the recording and hit and Logan's first thing is to go to Graham and tell him to not kill Henderson. Like he, he, he is, he's king, he's king pawn. He's a pawn, but he's slightly more in charge than the other pawns of Walt mm-hmm. Cummings and Henderson, James Nathanson, etc. He's got some control and he's got some authority. And obviously he is the president, so Graham himself and, and Henderson, everyone has to respect him in some way. But he's not ultimately in control of the entire situation here. It's not his plan. He's just a part of it. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it kind of falls in line with Logan's character because, like I said, he's not 
he doesn't come across in the previous 24 episodes that he's in. He doesn't come across as a mastermind. He doesn't come across as a guy that should be running things. Even though he's the president, you think back to season four when they had that when they had that crisis and he had to bring in David Palmer to help him because he didn't know how to navigate through that crisis. He didn't know how to make the tough decisions. And we saw that for a good portion of season five. He always got outside opinions from Mike Big, from, from his wife. How Gardner basically manipulated him into imposing martial law. So, <clears throat> Logan has never been the guy to kind of make that final decision. He's never been the guy to make the tough call. So I think when it was revealed that Logan was a puppet in a longer game and there was a cabal that was dictating things behind the scenes, it made sense because Logan is not the kind of person that can that can do all of that by himself. Mm-hmm. Okay, here, real quick, I'm going to take a pause because we're getting close on time. And so, Bradley, your thoughts. So you still had some notes here about <clears throat> the moles, different things like that, and there's also the section on the recording. Does it make sense to continue with the moles and then we push the whole recording piece the next week? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Okay, so we'll wrap up with, with the pieces with the mole, and then we'll just do that, and then the whole next week is the hunt for the recording Okay. So go ahead, Bradley, and you can just go ahead into the pieces about the mole. One of the other things, <clears throat> I can cough. One of the other things that the Logan reveal actually highlights for me is that it reminds us why 24 should have stopped doing moles after Logan. Because you look at the, one, the successful ones, and there have only really been three, I'd say Jamie Farrell, Nina, Logan. All the other mole reveals fall a little bit flat. You've got Gael, who's a non-mole. It's fine. I don't think it would have worked if he'd been a, a, a proper mole. And the, re- like, the reason for all this is that I think the reason the ones in other seasons don't work is because we're not invested in the character at all. Jamie Farrell, okay, we've only had six episodes, but you get the sense that she's likable. There was the whole thing that Richard Walsh trusts her, so Jack should trust her and everyone should trust her. She seemed nice. And she's betraying everyone. Nina, Logan, obviously we've got to know them quite well. Whether we like them or not, different debate, but we've got to know them. And, and the groundwork is there for them to be enjoyed as characters. But Gael, we barely know. Marianne, just horrible. From the word go, horrible. Walt Cummings works because we hate him anyway, but I don't think it's great. Spencer's tolerable, but only because of how it impacts Chloe. Sean Hillinger and Erica in season seven are just awful possibly worse than marianne see also dana walsh in season eight brian gedge the traitor to the president's husband in season seven as well is is not amazing i think it's just i i do think it is a case of 
these characters we barely know. And when they get thrown in, a lot of the time it's, in, or fairly instantly, we've just met them. Oh, and now they're working at CTU, by the way. They're working against the FBI, by the way. Or they're working against the president's husband, by the way. It just it feels unnecessary. And so this Logan reveal and, and Jamie and Nina before it feel like the way to go about it. You establish a character that's likable and then you pull the rug out rather than five minutes of screen time. Oh, they're a traitor. Doesn't work. <clears throat> yeah. That's an interesting thought too because that's an interesting thought because I'm thinking forward now to season seven. You alluded to the to Brian Gedge and all those different things there that happened in season seven. And the, and the premise behind season seven is that the conspiracy of everything that was going on just ran so deep in the government that you didn't know where it was. But here in season five, we have it goes all the way up through the president. And I don't know, maybe it was just in season five here, it goes so high where the corruption was, whereas in season seven, it's wide and covers a big spectrum. So maybe that's the difference in there. But anyway. As a concept, I'd support that. But actually, the characters are just... Ugh. ugh. Not good. You don't seem happy, Bradley. No, I, I am very happy. I just I think that the Logan reveal here highlights what about, that... What about Steve Navarro and Live Another Day? Uh, he didn't include him, but yeah, Steve... Yeah... He, he falls into that sort of meh, it, it's fine. But I don't think that the series gains masses out of having him be the mole. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Anyway, so there is another piece that gets introduced during this particular section. But we're going to get into that next week because... That's what ties up the entire last part of the season, and that is with a recording that takes place. So Christopher Henderson wasn't the only one with a recording, as you find out. But anyway, we'll talk about all of that next week, and looking forward to being able to discuss that. A lot of great things happen in this last part that I'm excited to be able to talk about, and hopefully Bradley includes that in our notes so we can be able to do that. Otherwise, I might have to do some rewriting. But other than that, (laughs) see, I can mute Joel and I can rewrite Bradley, but that's about my extent of contribution to this apparently. But anyway, I appreciate you guys and your insight. And uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. If uh, you listening want to be able to submit your feedback, you can be able to do that. You can ping us on Twitter and uh, we would love to be able to get your comments there. You can go to the website, 24faithful.com. And you can leave us a message that way as well. And so we thank you for listening now that we are wrapping up episode 101, continuing on, no Dalmatians in this case, which is good. And we are going to wrap it up and we'll see you guys next week. Mm